Good morning and welcome. I have a question for you this morning. Has anybody ever taken your goat? Not gotten your goat, because we've all had our goats gotten, but has anybody taken your goat? Well, you would probably say, well, I don't even own a goat. How can anybody take a goat I don't have? Well, Dr. David Livingstone, the famous explorer, missionary to Africa, experienced that very thing. Uh, Dr. David Livingstone served in Africa from 1840 to 1873 upon his death. And there's a, uh, a story about his time in Africa. When he was going into Central Africa, he came to the edge of, uh, and remember, these were uncharted lands, basically unmapped. Very few explorers had ever gone before. And David Livingstone came to the border of a tribal area. And before he could enter it, he was informed that uh, the tribal chieftain would come out, and it was a vast area there in Central Africa, and the tribal chieftain would come out, and he would have to look over all of Livingstone's possessions that he had with him, and he would choose something, and then in return, give David Livingstone something in return. And uh, so David Livingstone spread everything out on the ground, all his personal possessions, his shaving gear, his Bibles, everything he had, and he had a goat with him because he depended on the goat for milk because he had an upset stomach if he drank the local water. And uh, Livingstone had these few possessions, and when he laid them all out and the tribal chieftain came up, and to his dismay, the chief picked the goat and took the goat, and in exchange, he gave Dr. Livingstone a carved stick, like a walking stick, and uh, that's what he had. And Livingstone was greatly disappointed. And for a little while, he complained to God about what he viewed as just a stupid walking stick. And it could not compare to the goat he had to give away uh, for his own well-being there in Africa. Well, we come today to a passage of scripture where probably for some of the disciples, they felt like somebody had taken their goat, if you will, metaphorically speaking. If you take your copy of scripture and turn to the gospel of Mark chapter 10, even though today is Palm Sunday and Wes read for us what is commonly called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, this occurs a few days earlier in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, where we will look briefly at a prophecy that Jesus gave to his disciples about the future, the very near future. Remember, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And as a prophet, he was giving forth something that they didn't know that was going to occur. This is the third time he's done it in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 8, verse 31, was the first revelation from Jesus Christ to his disciples that something was going to happen in the near future. Chapter 9, verse 31, was the second uh, <clears throat> prediction of his death and burial and resurrection. But here in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we find a fuller explanation with each prophecy. Jesus gets fuller and more detailed in his prediction in his prophecy. Remember in the gospels, each gospel writer has a purpose, and they all present the Lord Jesus Christ to the Messiah. Matthew presents Jesus as the king. Matthew primarily writes to a Jewish audience, and he presents Jesus as the king. Mark here presents Jesus as a servant. As you read through the gospel of Mark, you will see that he is presented and illustrated as a servant, one who comes to serve. Uh, Luke presents Jesus, of course, Luke being a doctor, would be focused on Jesus' humanity. And 
so as we read through Luke, we'll see an emphasis on Jesus' humanity, whereas the Gospel of John, we see that John presents Jesus in his deity. And so we have these different perspectives of this Messiah. We come to Mark today, whose primary purpose is to present Jesus Christ, the servant Messiah, the servant Christ. And probably in his mind, he goes back to Isaiah chapters, what, 47 through 53 or so, these these shepherd chapters that Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel, brought forth. And in your uh, bulletin, on your bulletin insert, I've included the parallel passages of the Gospels here, that what are called the synoptic Gospels that intertwine together Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so you can follow along there if you'd like. And you can see how each Gospel writer presents this event. But this account parallels uh, Matthew chapter 20 and Luke chapter 18, And this is the third passion prediction. And uh, Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of all of Israel's desires and goals. They are looking for their Messiah. They are desiring this Messiah. In fact, the Old Testament prophets prophesied of this coming Messiah. Clear from Genesis chapter 315, there was going to be a rescuer to rescue people from their sins. And by this time, Zechariah, everybody in Israel was familiar with what Zechariah said. I will guard my temple and protect it from invading armies. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. That was Zechariah's prophecy centuries before and so here is jesus he's preparing to enter jerusalem and in chapter 10 verse 32 it says they were on the road going up to jerusalem now those of you and some of you just recently returned from israel you're very familiar you can picture it in your mind's eye that road from jericho up well somewhere north of jericho jesus and his disciples and other pilgrims were coming down to go to jerusalem for the passover celebration Last week, if you were with us, Olivier Melnick with Chosen People Ministries demonstrated for us how the Messiah is seen in the Passover elements. Very powerful presentation about Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Israel's longings, of all the prophecy of Old Testament Israel. And remember these Old Testament prophets, they were looking at mountain ranges essentially. The first one was a near prophecy the near mountain, and then they see another peak behind it, and they see a far prophecy, and they don't see the valley in between. And so Zechariah is looking to this, this coming of the Messiah on this colt into Jerusalem, but he doesn't see the distance between the next peak when the millennial kingdom will be established for Ze- Zechariah in his mind, and in his view, it was a compressed issue where one would happen right after another. Well, we live in the valley time, this church age time, And we are waiting for this millennial kingdom where Zechariah talks about removing the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. And such a mess the Middle East is in right now. And we look at that over the the decades, decade after decade. Peace does not come, and it will not come until the peacemaker comes back to Israel, to Jerusalem, and reigns on And so Jesus, it tells us here in chapter 10, verse 32, they were going up to Jerusalem, which was higher in elevation. So it literally was true that they were climbing an elevation to go up to Jerusalem, but it was also a a, a metaphor for going up to the city of God, to Mount Zion, to worship, to observe Passover, 
to be there at the times that for each Jewish person, observant Jews, it was determined they should be there. And so Jesus, he was leading the way here in verse 32. They were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. This was a rabbinical tradition. The rabbis, they would all have followers or students, and the rabbi would lead when they would travel from place to place, and the people would follow as the rabbi led. So it was some traditional aspect, but also here, I believe the emphasis and the reason Mark talks about that Jesus went on ahead of them or he was leading them is because he was set. This was why he was here. He was going to Jerusalem, and he was going to go to Calvary for all the sins of the world. And so Jesus has a focus here. The Savior has a focus here in verse 32. He was focused, first of all, on a place, not just Jerusalem where the temple was, not just Jerusalem where Passover would be centered, but he's thinking of that place called Golgotha where he will hang on a cross and die for the sins of the world. They were headed to this place. It was such a spiritual place, the center of the universe for the Jewish people, for the Jewish nation. They were going up to this temple of Yahweh, going up to this place where God dwelt and the place to make sacrifices and atonement for the people. And that's what Passover was about. But with every step, he was going up. He was going up to serve his duty, his calling, his purpose. Mark 10, 45, later it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Very purposeful. This was not plan B. This is what God had planned from the foundation of the world. Remember Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Central in Jesus' mind is this destination where he knows he's going to meet and fulfill what God in times past had determined. So he was focused on this plan. He knew that when he arrived at Jerusalem, these things would happen. And we were, God was not surprised by this. First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, With the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. His death was promised, to be clear back in Genesis 3.15, in, in, in a mystery form. It was pictured in the coats of skin God made cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve after they fell. His death was prefigured in every sacrifice down through the centuries that Israel uh, produced in the offerings and the sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple. His death was the theme of the Old Testament prophets, the fulfillment, this one coming as a Messiah. And Jesus made his way to Jerusalem with this plan in mind. He was also focused on a people. And this is an important part for you and I for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to remember that he was focused on a people, not just a people of that generation, but a people before and after that generation as well as the generation. Jesus was attentive 
to who you and I were. Before he was born, the angel told Joseph in Matthew 129, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. Jesus came to the world with people on his mind. All who would believe on him and be saved, John 1.12. All who would be given to him by the Father in John 6.37. All those chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He had on mind all those who would bow before the Father and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. If you're a believer today, he had you on his mind. That's incredible, isn't it? To think about the millions and millions of people on the earth today, the billions, and the millions that have gone before us since Jesus' time, and yet he thinks of us, and he went to the cross with you and I in mind, as well as every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus had, had a focus when he approached Jerusalem on this road up towards Jericho and then on up to Jerusalem. But then it turns to his fathers. Look at uh, verse 32, to his followers, excuse me. Verse 32, he was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. They were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. If you trace it through the Gospel of Mark, we see that the disciples, those closest to him, the twelve, were amazed or astonished on multiple occasions. They are growing in their faith, and yet they're not quite there yet as far as the understanding. They don't understand what's going on yet, and they are fearful because they know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious uh, political establishment in Israel was seeking to destroy Jesus. Remember, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, I mean, who could deny it? There were all sorts of witnesses, and the Pharisees gathered together to plot how they could kill Jesus and Lazarus. I always find that very humorous, that he rose Lazarus from the dead. We're going to kill him again so Jesus can raise him from the dead again. You know, it just, they were against him. And so the disciples knew this, and they had personal fears for their own safety, but yet they had a resolve in the midst of their astonishment and their fear. In John eleven sixteen, John writes for us, and I love Thomas for this, when Jesus lets them know they're going to go up to Jerusalem before the Passover, he says, well, let's also go. That way we may die with him, you know. But there's a resolve in that. And there's an aspect where as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what comes our way, we must be resolved because he is only the only one worthy of following, worthy of our attention and our a desire to follow. So they have it resolved in there. And the remedy, of course, is Jesus himself. Jesus is the remedy for all of our anxiety, our fears, even our astonishment about what he's doing in our lives today. Look, at it says, and he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And I just sense here, there just seems to be an implication that he was very gentle with them. Because he knows exactly that they're fearful. He knows exactly that they're astonished that he would even go up there and put all their lives at risk. And he goes on to tell, and this is where he, he gives us the prophecy. This is Jesus' future. He will be rejected. He will be ridiculed. He will be uh, involved in regicide. See, I've got to stick with the R words. And, uh, and then resurrection. But regicide is, refers to the killing of a king. The killing of a king. And he uses eight future tense verbs in these passages where he speaks, where he says in verses 33 through 34, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Rejection, ridicule, killing of a king, resurrection. And really, he gives us an outline of the rest of the book of Mark. When you think about the fact he's going up to Jerusalem, we see that occurring in chapter, he's on his way now, but chapter 11 through chapter 13. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, chapter 14. And they will condemn him uh, to death, chapter, end of chapter 14. They will deliver him to the Gentiles, in other words, the Romans, chapter 15. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him, chapter 15, 2 through 38. And the third day he will rise again, chapter 16, 1 through 11. In fact, many liberal scholars uh, claim that this was written after the events because that's the only way it could be so precise. Isn't that amazing? They don't have enough faith to believe that Jesus Christ, being God, would know all things in the future. And he could detail very clearly, as he did here for his disciples, that all these things were going to take place. This was not an ambush of Jesus. This was not a surprise, or as I said, plan B. But this was God's plan all along, and Jesus knew it. And he was comforting his disciples in the midst of this. So what does that mean for you and I on this Palm Sunday? Well, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you never need to fear death. You never need to fear hell. You never need to fear the grave or the judgment of God. Isn't that wonderful? There is a peace and a rest in knowing Christ as Savior. He was not dying for himself. Jesus wasn't. He was dying for all those who would place their faith in him. For all people, it's available to all, but specifically for those who believe in him for eternal life. He was our substitute. He satisfied fully a holy, righteous God's demands. He was opening the way of salvation to every person. When Christ died, he was dying for sin and for us as sinners, and he died for those who would place their faith in him, particularly we appropriated that at the time of belief. And he rose again to everlasting life, and we have the promise of everlasting life. If you ever wondered, what's it going to be like in heaven? Well, we get some glimpses in Scripture, but the primary evidence is Christ after he rose again and appeared to his disciples. They recognized him. They talked to him. He ate food, but he was different than his glorified body. He was different, and yet he's, he interacted with them and fellowshiped with them. He stripped away the power of the grave forever and ever for those who believe in Christ. And the question is, is do you understand? That is the primary critical hinge point press question. If you look at Luke, the parallel passage in Luke, it says that after Jesus said he will rise again in verse 34 of Luke 18, but the disciples understood none of these things. There they are, right in his presence being taught, and they didn't understand. Now, it's easy for us to criticize the disciples. In fact, later in this passage, we see James and John arguing over who's going to sit at Christ's right hand. In other words, who's going to have preeminence in the kingdom, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it at this time. Of course, Luke tells us because the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. They did understand later. After Jesus rose again, ascended on the day of Pentecost, they became very bold. 
Remember Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, all of the movement of Christianity to the then known world in less than 125 years because these people understood finally what was going on and what had happened. But 1 Corinthians 2.8 says that none of the rulers of this, this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were blinded, weren't they? Pilate, Caiaphas, the high priest, members of the Sanhedrin, the Roman soldiers, most of the crowd gathered around. Remember on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, there were only 125 believers gathered in the upper room. But the thousands upon thousands who witnessed his crucifixion did not know it was the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The very power of God. Jesus Christ declares his Messiahship, that he is the Savior, the long-awaited one. He affirms God's divine designs, and he confounds his followers' expectations. There are many things we won't understand this side of heaven. In fact, the more I study, the older I get, the more I know I don't know. <laughs> okay? And I think that all of us would admit to that. But we can understand these few things. There is only one sacrifice. There is only one way to forgiveness. There is one plan of salvation. And it's made possible through Jesus Christ for you and for me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. Numerous times Jesus claims authority, authenticity, and that he is the only way to heaven. That's all that matters. When he became your savior, if you are a believer, we have all of these promises individually for us. Our faith and repentance and willingness to obey Christ, and we're promised the forgiveness of sins and promised that we can uh, be in the very presence of a righteous, holy God and a Holy Spirit who empowers us to live the Christian life. Well, what about David Livingstone? How did that end with this uh, tribal chieftain taking his goat, his source of, of uh, what he considered a healthy life? And I think probably all of us have some goats in our lives that uh, God would like to take away from us. But one of the local tribal people explained to Dr. Livingstone and said, that's not a walking cane. It is the king's own scepter. And with that scepter, you will find entrance to every village in our territory. The king has honored you greatly. And of course, this man was great, was right, because uh, God opened through Livingstone and others who went to Central Africa, uh, successive evangelists who followed him, wave after wave of conversions occurred. And Christianity penetrated deepest, darkest Central Africa. Sometimes uh, in our disappointment over what we don't have, we fail to appreciate the significance of what God has given us. And he has given us salvation. And he's told us here that he rose on the third day. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. I thank you for...